We've been in a series uh, in the book of Acts called Supernatural. Supernatural. And why supernatural? Because we believe it takes help from heaven, help from heaven to love and live like Jesus. And that's exactly what's happening in the book of Acts. Like normal, broken, weak people empowered by the Spirit to live and love like Jesus. Where fear is overcome where individualism is put aside for the sake of others, where they learn to look deeply at others, even those who they they normally didn't see or those who normally went overlooked. And like we talked about last week, where they learn to put that family above the nation. Remember, this is... This is, this is like conservatives and liberals and uh, Jew and Gentile and black and white coming together around the same table and forming a new community. Those who had no business coming together. This is not natural. It's supernatural. And, um, you know, we don't have to look far today to see the challenges of this. Um, the troubles that are against this kind of family being formed, this kind of community being formed. I mean, right, we're so divided, right? We're polarized. Um, Man, I've toiled over this pandemic. Um, You know, it's like a public health crisis, and yet we've made it a, a, a something, you know, about like politics or our polarized opinions. And then this week, I got to sit down with a retired Haverford police officer And I realize that we so quickly uh, jump into our polarized camps, right? So whether, uh, no matter what side of that you're on, you know, we, we jump into our camps and we lose the ability to hear one another, to sit down and look at each other in the face and listen and, and hear and learn the experiences of other human beings. And I think when we lose that nuance of conversation, ultimately we lose. We lose. So I want to listen to all sides. I want to hear human stories. Whether it's my black or blue brothers and sisters. I realize just as I've never sat down with uh, some of my black brothers and sisters and really listened and entered their world, I've never really sat down with a police officer and entered theirs either. So I set out to change that this week. And I was reminded in that conversation that, man, there's no easy answers. And I certainly don't have them. But what I do know is that presence, empathy, dialogue, listening, sitting down, tuning into other human beings is where we need to begin. And I believe that's what Jesus is doing in the world today. That's this redemption story that we talk about. Where, where walls that are erected between human beings are being broken down. Where, where trust that has been broken between people is being healed and restored. And a new kind of family is taking shape. That's what was happening here in the book of Acts. And this morning, we go to Acts 4, the end of Acts 4, the beginning of Acts 5. And here, the, the family of God, this family that Jesus is forming, is being threatened. The lies of fear are beginning to slither their way in. So turn with me to Acts chapter 4. 
Acts chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 32. And we're going to go to verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 11. Now, sometimes these like, chapter markings and these headlines, they deceive you into thinking that the story is over. But the, the, the reality here is these things are very, these, uh, this, this, this passage is very much connected. So, so let's start in verse 32. Now, the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind. And no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. But instead, they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, because all who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to the people, but to God. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead, and a great fear came on all who had heard. The young men got up, wrapped his body, carried him out, and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what happened. <laughs> Tell me, Peter asked her, did you sell the land for this price? Yes, she said, for that price. Then Peter said to her, why did you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Instantly, she dropped dead at his feet. When the young men came in, they found her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Then great fear came on the whole church and on all who heard these things. Pray with me. Pray with me. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word today that's been passed to us faithfully, that's alive. It's not easy, though. We don't get a lot of what we hear and read in this scripture, in the Bible. So we need help. We need supernatural help from heaven to be able to hear these words today. Particularly this passage, it's one of the harder ones in the book of Acts to wrap ourselves around. So we ask for your help, Holy Spirit, who is alive today, who inspired these words, who was present when these actions happened. Help us understand. Would you open our eyes to see clearly, open our ears to hear, and open our hearts to receive and respond in love, not fear. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So you catch the contrast. On one end, you got Barnabas. Barnabas sells his, 
his, a piece of his land, and he brings the proceeds to the church. It's a beautiful picture of community here, where God is present. Man, they're sharing life together, sharing possessions. This wasn't just about some religious production or organization. This was about life together. It wasn't about just, hey, give your money to the church and to a nonprofit. No, this was life that was joint together. It was sacred. It was holy. It was supernatural. Then comes Ananias. This is very much a contrast. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is helping us to see the, the threat The difference between here's what real Christian community looks like and here's what happens when we allow the the lie of fear to enter into the community. So here comes Ananias. On the surface, he does exactly what Barnabas does. He sells a piece of land and he gives gives the proceeds to the church. However, his heart was divided. He and his wife, they devote the the proceeds to the church and, and then decide to keep some of it back for themselves. So they got one foot in the community and one foot reaching for security of the possessions and security of our world. You remember the word kenosis we introduced a few weeks back? It was this this voluntary self-emptying of Jesus that he modeled so beautifully. So instead of letting go of self, now, this isn't just emptying oneself for the sake of being empty. This is emptying to be filled, to, 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 be, to be filled with the Spirit of God and to be filled with love for others. And This is not just emptying. But instead of emptying themselves, instead of letting go, Ananias and Sapphira are preserving themselves. Instead of being filled with the Spirit of God, they are filled with the Spirit of Satan. And this was an assault on the community. In the first few chapters of Acts, we see a beautiful community of love coming together. We call it the church. And this this community was, was to be the very real body of Jesus in the absence of his physical body on the earth. And, and now, instead of living in love towards this community, they choose to preserve themselves. And that very familiar voice of fear, that chorus of the enemy has worked its way in to the community that the Spirit is forming here. It slithered its way in. And you want to know one of the primary ways the enemy shows up? I hear Christians sometimes blame everything on Satan. Oh, that right there, this whole coronavirus thing, that's a Satan thing. And I look, I, I don't know all about that, but here's the deal. The way the enemy most often slithers its way in is through stealthy fear. Stealthy fear. Uh, This couple feared they wouldn't have enough. They feared that God wouldn't provide, that the community wouldn't provide. So they they chose self-protection and security. And this was a threat. See, fear and love cannot exist. Love drives out fear. You know what that means? Sometimes we have to confront fear. We have to do the uncomfortable work of opening up our motivations and rooting out where fear is driving us and allow the love of God to wash it away. So this is what Peter does. He questions Ananias. Now, listen, Peter's role was to question. Question. Somehow he knows something was up. I don't, we don't see all of that. We don't know whether the Holy Spirit tipped him off. Or whether he just had a sense that something was off, right? 
You know what I'm talking about. You have close relationships and you just know, man, something is off. There's, our connection has been interrupted. There's fear. There's lies. There's something going on under the surface here. You don't really know how to put, put you know, what, what to put your finger on, but you know something isn't right. So Peter knows something's not right. Maybe the Holy Spirit tips him off. I don't know, but he, he questions Ananias. Very important here, though, he does not judge. Judgment is left up to God. Judgment is left up to God. See, now, I don't fully understand how both Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead. It's one of the most challenging scriptures in the book of Acts. But it wasn't the church who killed them. This is really important. Because the church isn't stoning them here. See, the, the, the behavior of the religious and the judgment would say, you have committed an act against us, and now you must pay, so we will cast judgment on you, and we will stone you to death. So what they did to, to, to Jesus. But it wasn't the church that killed them. The church isn't stoning them here. The church is simply confronting And it's actually a reversal of an ancient killing culture that would have stoned them for breaking the covenant. Willie Jennings reminds us that we are a people of resurrection, not death. So as the church today, this new family, we don't judge and and punish. Peter is simply confronting. And you see, the issue here is not that, that they kept the money. Peter makes it clear that they had the opportunity to do with their land as they saw fit. The issue here was that they lied to God and betrayed the community. Once they committed and dedicated the proceeds of the sale of the land to the community of God, it was sacred. It was holy. And now they decide to, to, to keep some of it back, and so what happens is that trust is broken. And here's the here's a Here's a a major truth I want you to hear this morning. When trust is broken, we must not turn away. We must seek to repair and restore. Now, this runs against our nature, doesn't it? And we need help from heaven to do this. It's way easier to brush things under the rug, right? But Peter is showing us the importance of confronting. When fear runs, starts to work its way into our relationships, into our community, into, into, uh, into our trust, and the trust is severed and broken, we must confront it. Now, it's much easier to pacify each other and say things like, yo, it's all good, bro. It's all good. I, I know you didn't mean that. Or to avoid it altogether. Or to flat out ignore each other. How many relationships have ended, families have been broken, or communities have been torn apart because we've resisted confrontation? We've resisted to sit with each other in our severed trust. There's an assumption here in the text. There's an assumption here, a very clear assumption that there was an opportunity for repentance. So, number one, we must trust. When trust is broken, we must not turn away. We must repair. We must restore. We must seek that. Number two, repentance is always the doorway to healing and wholeness. Listen, not everyone will respond favorably to repentance or the invitation to repentance. Obviously, Ananias and Sapphira did not. But we have to fight for this because naturally we will run, hide, avoid, or fight each other. 
And over time, the community of love will turn to a community of anger and bitterness and lies and fear. And when we let relationships go on without repentance and forgiveness, we only build walls and create further distance. And then breaking through those walls, breaking through that distance becomes even more challenging. Right? Have you ever been there? The harder, the more bitterness and hardness that we've built up over time, it seems like we've got to go through hundreds of feet of cement to get to the other side. And a lot of us, we just run away and say, it's just too difficult. Jacqueline and I walked that path. In my recovery from sexual brokenness, I had to learn to confess and repent on a daily basis. Now listen, I didn't do it out of fear that my wife would be mad at me or leave me. But I became obsessed with restoring our connection. I hated feeling disconnected. I hated the distance that lies and sin and secrets would put between Jacqueline and I. And even to this day, we speak vulnerably about our connection. We say things, I say things like, hey, babe, I'm not feeling very connected with you. What's going on? What have I missed? What, what, what's, what's happening under the surface? Is everything all right? What's keeping us distant right now? Sometimes it's just a season of life. Sometimes it's a hard week or few days or season. Sometimes it's failures and brokenness that I have to repent of or that Jacqueline has to repent of. But we have grown to love that process, not because we love hating on each other or hating ourselves, or we love to just feel sorry and repent. I mean, that's not fun, friends. It never gets fun. But we love the process because we know that on the other side of repentance and forgiveness is life and deeper connection and intimacy. And that's what Peter was after here. All right, we must confront. We must repent. Repentance and forgiveness, it's the, it's the doorway to life. But you know what? The way of fear is death. If repentance and forgiveness is the doorway, is the way to life, the, the way of, of fear is the pathway that leads to destruction. And ultimately, we see that here. Look, Ananias and Sapphira, ultimately their choices lead to death and destruction. The way of fear is death. The pathway of fear leads to destruction. I don't know what fully happened here. Eugene Peterson helps us a little bit here. He talks about how the storytellers of Scripture often leave gaps in the text. This is what he says. Listen to this. When a storyteller leaves gaps in the story... There is an implicit invitation for us to enter into it, to participate in it. Now, we are not permitted to do anything we wish with that or imagine anything we wish. We are constrained by the context, by the revelation we have been given. But within the constraints of the revelation of God showing himself to us, we are invited to participate and bring our prayerful imaginations into the text. Here's the bottom line. A lot of times when we read scripture, there's gaps, there's there's dis, there's there's holes that need to be filled in. And no doubt you've probably watched a movie that was like adapted from a book and you've, you've seen how the storyteller uses their imagination that, taking the context of the book, of the story, the narrative, and filling in some of the gaps on the movie screen. And in, in essence, that's what we need to do here with the Bible. And really, the bottom line here 
is that it was fatal for Ananias and Sapphira to manipulate God, to try to control God, to try to be God. The fear led them to protect themselves, to keep themselves from others, to shield themselves, to preserve themselves. And instead of trusting God, they tried to be God. They leaned into their ego. This is what fear does to us, right? Fear causes us to seek control, to react, to protect ourselves. And what's clear is that fear leads to death. <clears throat> that was that clear at the beginning, too. God creates a world that was good, right, and beautiful, fills it with community, with a family, says, right, it wasn't good for man to be alone. And yet, that same voice of fear slithers in and starts to say, are you sure what you have is enough? Are you really secure? Isn't God holding out on you? The infamous chorus of fear. All the while masquerading as wisdom sometimes, right? I'll just keep a little bit of the money from this as a security, as a little nest egg. You know, we need it. Maybe we'll invest it. No. See, the root here is fear. Ananias and Sapphira, they didn't have to give all of their money, but they pledged it. They, 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 they committed it, and then they backed away. See, fear, Dan White says, fear tells us love is not enough. Maybe I'm not okay. Maybe I don't have enough. Maybe I'm not safe. Shifting us into a self-preserving state. This is what happened here. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard writes, Since the early goings of the Genesis story, fear became the core illness in the human condition. It is no mistake that Scripture repeats the words, Do not fear and do not be afraid, over and over. It is a central emotion in opposition to the work of love. So the work of love, the story of redemption, this family of love that God is forming, fear becomes the central opposition to that work. All right, well, what happened? What about this verse here at the end that says, great fear came on the whole church and to all who heard these things? Have you ever asked yourself, have you ever heard anybody say, I'm going to put the fear of God in you? I'm going to put the fear of God in you. Wait, wait, what, what is that? What is that about? Why does the text do that? All right. Have you heard of Constantine? Pretty big name in history, right? Constantine was this powerful commander and ruler in the fourth century. He was often referred to as Constantine the Great for his epic battles that he won. Well, he converts to Christianity, and through his zeal and power, he battled with the Christian symbol of the cross on his soldiers' shields. So he adopts this Christian uh, symbolism. You know, he, he converts to Christianity, and he's, he's got the cross on the, the shield of his soldiers, right? And, and, and he's slaughtering thousands of enemies, attributing it to the Christian God. And the cross would mark his rule and reign. And it was, it was, it was the promotion of Christianity using raw force and power. They would worship on a Sunday morning and then go kill pagans on Monday morning. In a way, the God of Constantine was what my friend Dan White calls a Zeus-looking God. A Zeus-looking God. And I think 
a lot of us, we see God this way. We see him as this Zeus-like being, right? This God of power, of force, a God that should be feared if you don't comply with his demands or obey his commands. And it would seem as if that's what maybe we should feel like here. Man, if I don't obey God, I'm going to drop dead like Ananias and Sapphira. And obviously, some have used this Zeus-looking God as a way to take Christianity and manipulate people with it. And maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you've experienced that in your past, where the church has used this image of God as to, to, to coerce and to, to, to guilt you into behavior modification. I just want you to know that's not the God who is Jesus. All right. So on one end, you have this Zeus-looking God. On the other side of the spectrum is what Dan calls the self-esteem God. So unlike the Zeus-looking God, this God has little authority uh, and, you know, to place demands or, or, or constraints on our choices in our life, right? Authority is now shifted from this powerful God being to the inner self. And God is primarily concerned with my wants or being and just making sure that we have good vibes about ourselves. Unfortunately, the unsatisfied ego becomes the center here, and the reality is our ego is never satisfied, so we become God, and the real God orbits around us. And you might be familiar with this self-esteem God, this God that celebrates you. Now, in both the Zeus-looking God and the self-esteem God, there's elements of truth, but ultimately, they do not capture the revelation of God that looks like Jesus. Ultimately, they do not capture the revelation of God that looks like Jesus. Remember that kenosis word? Jesus lays down himself. He empties himself. Jesus gives up his power and control and becomes a servant on the road of suffering. It's good to be live, right? We got the uh, Manoa Firehouse. God bless those brothers and sisters over there. Thank you for them. <laughs> um, so Jesus, he empties himself, right? He lays down his power and control. It's this upside down way, this love that he has. Yet he also comes with costly demands on our life. Jesus doesn't exist just to give us good vibes. We too need to lay down our lives and submit to the way of love. So what do we do with this phrase, the fear of God? What do we do with that? I like to, I like to suggest we change it. Honestly, the word fear um, that's rooted in Greek and, and Hebrew is better translated revere. Revere. Say that with me. Revere. Revere. So instead of fear, we are to revere God. We are to believe God's good intentions. We are to believe that God's presence and all-consuming love is all we need to be satisfied in life. So let me ask you this. Is God actually the supreme source of goodness in your life? Ananias and Sapphira, they felt they needed to hold on to possessions and money. That was the source of goodness in life. No, but we are to revere God. Let me put it this way. If I was a musician, I'm in, I am a musician, but I'm not trying to be 
a music, like a, I'm not trying to be a famous musician or anything, right? But if I was trying to make it in the music business, and I lived right next door to Justin Timberlake, instead of scoffing at Justin and seeking his advice and, you know, right, right? Instead of scoffing at him, to revere him would be to, to, to honor his authority in the area of music and to seek out his input and instruction, right? To revere. It's just to acknowledge, you know what, Justin, you know way more. Obviously, you're way better at music than me. So I'm, I'm going to honor that. I want to I say, you know what, I'm going to submit to your expertise and to your feedback. I'm going to let it impact me and move me and touch me. So to fear God is not to be afraid of God or his punishment, but rather it's the desire to seek God as the source for the good in life and to revere him as that source. When I revere God, I trust his ways. I can sell my land and give it to a community and trust that he's going to provide. I can confess my weaknesses and sin and trust that this is the path to healing. I can confront uh, severed relationships I can take the bold and uncomfortable steps of confronting and, and trust that I'm still loved and accepted, even if the party doesn't accept me. I can love my enemy, even if I get hurt and wounded in return. I can band together with those who are not like me, knowing that the God who is the creator of all humanity will help me see our shared humanity. I can be content with the little I possess and know that in Christ I have everything I need. And what you will find in this way is love, is life, is freedom. See, fear leads to death and bondage. Fear deceives us into thinking we're clinging to the good life. But love, letting go, trusting and revering the God who is the source of the good life, that is what really leads to the good life. That love comes at a cost. A cost that requires us to confront. To confront, we need to do the hard work of confronting that which threatens this kind of love. This is why we're speaking out against injustice, friends. Racism is rooted in fear. It opposes the way of God. Not only do we have to confront, but we have to confess we have to let our egos go. We must walk through the doorway of repentance and forgiveness. So I wonder today, where do you need to repent? As we turn to the table this morning, as we begin, as we begin to evaluate our hearts today, where have you accepted broken trust? Where have you swept severed relationships and injustices and under the rug out of fear? Where have you held back? What does God look like to you? Does your God look like a Zeus-looking God who's dominating and, 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 and ready to smite you at any moment? Or a self-esteem God who exists for the, the, the building up of your good vibe? Or does your God look like Jesus, 
who lays down his power and authority, yet demands that you do the same. Friends, God is building a community of love. I'm content not to let fear threaten it. How about you? How about you?